Well, thank you. And thanks for sticking around. I know sometimes there's that temptation to leave CEA a little early to beat the traffic back home or wherever else, but uh, we're happy you're here with us. Hopefully just sharing some ideas. We're just a couple of kind of knuckleheads who think we can do some things pretty well in our own classrooms and want to give you some ideas uh, too. We always kind of figure there's not a lot of social studies uh, classes here, it seems. So we wanted to throw our hat in the mix for once and yeah, give it a shot. Yeah, I'm Ross. Again, this is my 12th year at Timothy Christian outside of Chicago. I teach 7th grade social studies. Um, and at Timothy, we go, 7th grade social studies is like early European explorers in the New World up through Reconstruction right after the Civil War. And 8th grade takes it on from there. And I'm uh, Ken. And uh, fun fact, Ross and I were both trying to get the same job 12 years ago at Timothy but they did give it to him instead of me. Uh, but they, I, gave, I got the consolation prize. I got to teach fourth grade for seven years before I transitioned into fifth grade. And I've been in fifth grade now for five. Is that okay, everybody? Because, yeah. yeah, we're not really experts on Google Slides and making, like, you know, great presentations. We were making our final edits about 30 minutes ago. So, but yeah, we... Um, as Ross said, we're, we're not, I don't think, in any way, shape, or form, like, experts, you know, but we really enjoy what we do, and I think what, um, what we both share in common is that we are really big into experiential learning. Like, we want kids to connect history uh, by, by touching things and, and um, you know, and analyzing different artifacts and hearing guest speakers, and that's what we're really passionate about, and I feel like it's gone pretty well for the last several years in our school. So, yeah, let's get started here. Plenty of seats. Come sit down. Don't worry about walking in front of people. You got the clicker? Yeah, I got it. Okay. Uh, so just sort of an overview of our talk today. Uh, we want to share just how we've used guest speakers in our classrooms uh, it saves you a day, maybe gives you a little break, but really can engage your students, whether it be about a historical topic that that person might be an expert about, or um, you know, something that fits in with government or economics, uh, anything really. We're going to talk about artifacts, how to bring artifacts into your classroom, uh, a little kind of mini museum experience there for your kids. Uh, and then also, Ken specifically has used problem-solving games uh, to engage his students as well. So if that doesn't sound like you care about any of those things, now's your time to go. We'll just <laughs> assume no you had a family emergency or something like that, or maybe didn't like Ken. But um, that, that's what our, our own view is today. So Awesome. All right, well, I'm going to start us off. I uh, was, um, or I am, uh, really big into reenactments. Um, I will thought about being a reenactor someday until I realized that these people are just really strange. <laughs> so unique. I, unique. 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 Yeah. So uh, for years I had gone all over really the Midwest. I live in Indiana. So one of the, the big uh, reenactments that we have is called the Feast of the Hunter's Moon. It's one of the biggest. Have you been there? Yeah. All right. Nice. Yeah. It's, it's, it's enormous. They have like 50,000 people that come from all over uh, the Midwest and they come and uh, they just celebrate 18th century life here in America. And it's one of the places where I go to connect with people that love history. And you'd be surprised how many of these people would love to come to your classroom for free to talk about their little niche in history. And uh, so this is one thing that we've started doing a couple years ago. We do a thing called 18th Century Day. 
And so we have the kids dress up, you know, in the 18th century clothing, and we just celebrate colonial America. And we have uh, different stations that we set up around our school, and we get reenactors to come in, and they, they teach us about life in America hundreds of years ago. Um, we'll go, we'll do a candle making. I mean, I go to like Joanne Fabrics and buy a big old block of wax for like 10 bucks. And we, uh, you know, cut pieces of string and tie them onto pencils, and that's it. Super cheap and easy. We do 18th century games. We have uh, French-Canadian voyageurs and French Marines and Kentucky Long Hunters that come in and teach us. These are some people that I met uh, down in Indianapolis, um, and they were like, oh, yeah, we'd love to come up and hang out with your kids. They, they spent the night at a hotel near our school in Elmhurst, and uh, they came, and they had a, a pickup truck full of different hides and artifacts from the Voyager time period in American history. And of course, the kids just loved being able to touch the artifacts and um, just participate in some of the discussions. So these people here, these are some French Marines that were talking to the kids about the revolution. As you can see, they brought a ton of artifacts that the kids could touch and explore and ask questions and these guys just absolutely love to being able to talk to these kids about it. Um, I was trying to get a video. I couldn't get it to work. But um, shortly after this 18th century day, we actually brought some of these guns to our playground and shot them on our playground, which is really cool. <laughs> now, it, they weren't blanks, but uh, we got special permission from our principal. He contacted the police department to say, don't worry, there's no school <laughs> shooting. It's just a... A little reenactment we're doing, so but the kids just thought that was crazy. When was the last time you shot a gun at school, right? <laughs> Never. Hopefully. This is not hopefully. This is my friend uh, Brian. Um, I've known him for a long time. He does a whole bunch of different time periods. His big one is Civil War history, but uh, he also does a Kentucky Long Hunter, and just talks to the kids about life on the frontier and uh, some of the challenges that the, that you know he faces and. Um, again, all of the different artifacts. He has his Kentucky long rifle that he brings. And, you know, one of the questions that, you know, Ross and I were commenting on earlier is, you may be wondering the same thing, how is this possible that you can bring a firearm into school? And so for this gentleman here, uh, he gets a special federal permit of being an educator. He's allowed to bring in, um, you know, historical weapons. Obviously, they're not loaded. So... Uh, but Ross also has some that he's going to be mentioning and talking about a little bit later on. Um, part of our civics unit, so later on in our school year, I mean, again, I just I love being able to get other people in that know a lot more about things than I do. And so this was, uh, I remember mid-year last year during the pandemic, just talking to a parent. I'm like, we just finished learning about the Bill of Rights. I was like, I would really love to get a judge to come in to talk to the kids. And she's like, oh, yeah. I mean, my neighbor's a judge in Elmhurst. I'll, I'll call him. I thought, All right, well, let's, let's make this happen. So, of course, he agreed and came in, and uh, he talked to the kids for an hour about, uh, you know, the, the Bill of Rights and our civil liberties. And the questions the kids asked were just spectacular, just awesome. However, <laughs> there were some things that uh, I wasn't prepared for, you know, our, our guest speaker, our judge, uh, was just talking about some of the cases that he has tried. And, 
you know, these are fifth grade students, so he's bringing up things like child pornography, and I was like, oh my word, please. <laughs> and of course, it just went right over top of the kids' heads, but, you know, if you get people like a you know, judge, you might want to just say, hey, you know, maybe not talk about the specifics of your cases that you tried, but, um, but it's just allowing for a, a real person to come in that has in this amazing job as a judge, and the kids being able to interact with them uh, was just an amazing experience. Uh, ah, Mrs. Oakley is on the screen over here. Yeah, so another thing we do um, through our independent study practice, our in- independent study is called Living History Day. So Mrs. Oakley, who is actually right over there, um, we, get, we get together, we partner, and uh, the kids uh, learn about a person in American history that has had a positive impact on American culture. And so they, you know, a wide range of people from scientists to, you know, uh, presidents, sports figures. Um, this is, uh, and of course the teachers, we love to get into this too. And if, if the kids see you getting into it, it's going to make them even more excited about it as well. So that was being Paul Revere here and we have Annie Oakley and Jane Goodell. So it was, it was a lot of fun. All right. Before I move into my part though, Ken, you know, you go to a lot of reenactments, you said. Which yes. Depending where you live, that might be a thing you can, you know, track down or you might see around. But is there other ways to connect with these groups mm. if you don't have that nearby? Yeah, I just realized I forgot to mention that. Yep, me too. Thank you. <laughs> so one of, the, one of the ways that I connect with people is just through Facebook. And I look through, um, you'd be surprised how many groups there are on Facebook that are reenactors. So I would get on there and search. I'm, I'm telling you, these people are so excited to come to schools, and they'll do it for free. They're, they're just, most of them are retired, and they're just looking for something to do. They're total nerds about their part of history, and they love to just share their information with you. So I would, I would look at any kind of social media connections and, and go to the reenactments. I mean, um, I know I mean, we're, we're from Indiana, Chicago area. Um, but I know up here in Michigan there are tons of reenactments as well. So make those connections. Just ask, hey, I'm a teacher. Would anybody be willing to come and talk to my kids about X, Y, or Z? So, I was on a walk in my neighborhood one time. And, uh, again, suburbs of Chicago. And I, I saw a guy out literally polishing his cannon. And I was like, hey, buddy, what you got there? You know, like, and, and again, it's, it's, it's your neighbors. It's, there's people around that, that do this kind of thing. Um, and, yeah, you just got to look for them. Um, I would, you know, we, we made a joke about these are generally some pretty unique people um, who want to live, you know, 17 or 1800s lifestyles. So as Ken said about, you know, kind of prepping the judge maybe a little bit more um, before they talk, these people aren't teachers either. So I, I think that's worth saying too is is you know find out what they're going to talk about find out what they're going to bring in um you know do your leg work like you would with most other things as a teacher if you're previewing a video or whatever you're going to show you might want to preview the people a little bit as well um, just to, to make sure the experience goes well now we realize that living in sort of a major suburban metropolitan area you know we might have some access to things like you know more reenactors or more judges whatever else uh than maybe you where you're from um, but if you don't have those things available to you or as readily available, we, we kind of thought of some other ways to bring, you know, history to you too. Um, and that, that's really just scrounge up your own stuff. That, that's been something I've kind of 
latched onto uh, in my career is just trying to find actual historical things. I think if we're history nerds, uh, like I assume you are, um, you know, it's, it's cool to see those things, have those things, feel those things. That's why we like to go to museums as kids. That's why we still get excited about field trips that we lead. Uh, things that you see in museums, obviously, are, are probably priceless in some ways, but there's a lot of other stuff out there you can get your hands on. Uh, reaching out to local museums. You know, in Chicago, you know, we have the Field Museum, a world-renowned museum. I haven't necessarily utilized them, but you certainly have a museum in your area uh, to, to contact. And a lot of museums do lend things out. You know, they're not going to, like, go open the glass case and take out the 200-year-old whatever, but they might have some other items back in storage that don't normally get seen that they're willing to lend you or send somebody from the museum to you with it um, in order to, to show it, to explain it, to, to do that kind of show and tell for you or with you, hopefully. Um, especially like county and town museums, I, I find that those are very underutilized and even by us teachers, we probably don't always think of them. You know, if I'm in Chicago, I think about the big ones, right? The Chicago History Museum, the Field Museum, Museum of Science and Industry. But I know there's a, I live in a town called Lombard. There's a Lombard Historical Society. There's a little historic um, uh, settlement right there in town. And to go to them who, again, maybe they don't see as much traffic um, just naturally as some of the big name places do, uh, they're underutilized. And, and they're looking to help, though. You know, it's the vol probably volunteers running it. They want to be busy. They want to share what they're passionate about with you. So don't forget about the little guys, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And a lot of times they're stocked with things that have been donated over the years that maybe aren't the, the high quality, going to be in a museum for millions of people to see items that maybe they're a little more willing to share. Um, and also some pretty unique things, too, that maybe you wouldn't see anywhere else. And that's a good way to tie into your just local history. You know, again, we teach mostly American history, but how does our town or our region fit into that broader story? You know, we're learning about the Civil War, so how did... Michigan, you know, our area of Michigan contribute to that. Um, things that you might mention just offhand, or maybe you do have a, a top, you know, a, a lesson about it, but to actually bring some things in from, from local people, you know, it could even be family heirlooms that they might know the family who donated to the museum. It could be a really cool learning experience. Um, the Smithsonian, all right, we've all heard of that place. Hopefully you've been there at some point. Ken actually um, had a really cool experience with the Smithsonian. They have these... Uh, Pipe in whenever you feel free, but yeah. uh, or these giant trunks with like reproduction items from just throughout American history. Yeah, it was mostly like 18th century okay. um, period costumes and uniforms and military garb and totally free, totally free. And I found it at a conference we were at in Chicago a couple yeah, of years ago. Yeah, at the back. National Social Studies Conference. They were there. Um, but yeah, I know there is, I, I don't have the link to this, but you can search the Smithsonian traveling trunks, and everything is free. They come in these massive, massive trunks that weigh, I don't know how many, 50, 60 pounds a piece. But the shipping's free, everything is totally covered. And it comes with lesson plans and the whole shebang. So it's, it's definitely worth looking into, I think. Yeah, you don't have to go all the way to D.C., right? You can experience a little bit of that. And we'll just say it one more time. Free. 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 <laughs> free is good. Um, asking your classroom newsletter. Depending on what grade level you are, maybe if you're in high school, you don't have a classroom newsletter. But if you have some sort of communication with your families, throw something in there. You know, in two months, we're studying World War II. If you have anything, you know, that would tie into our studies, if you have any 
interests or, or actual things, you know, that, that you'd be willing to share with us, reach out, put your email address, you never know what might come in. Um, you'll get somebody's grandpa who, you know, has become an expert on D-Day in their, you know, retirement years. You'll get somebody who has, you know, great grandpa's World War I uniform that, you know, just hangs in the closet with some mothballs. Those are the kinds of things that, you know, you'll never get just randomly. You've you got to ask for them. And maybe you get some things, maybe you don't. But uh, you at least tried there. I, I think that's a really effective way of just finding the kind of those random little items. Because people have a lot of stuff, right? Think of your own home. Think of your attic. Think of your crawl space, your garage. Better yet, think of like your parents' attics and crawl space and garages, right? Um, you know, find the local hoarder. I don't know, but ask them. You know, you just never know what you're going to find. Um, and again, people might not think about that either. Like, oh, my kid is in your class. Oh, yeah, they're learning about this or that. But unless they're asked, they might not think about that thing they inherited. Or that's, you know, again, just collecting dust somewhere. Garage sales. I don't know if you're a garage sailor, but I am. Uh, cheap Dutchman here. So you never know what you're going to find on somebody's random table in their garage. right? And it's usually probably pretty fairly priced. Um, if you want to do something with like period clothing, look at some of your local theater companies. Or even like if, if you're in a high school, your, your theater department. Ask the director if you can scrounge through things. You know, If you want to come busting in to introduce... You know, Revolutionary War history, wearing a fruffy shirt and, you know, knickers and everything, that, that'd be awesome, right? The kids are going to remember that stuff. Uh, but local theater companies have props, costumes, hats, you know, just little things that, even if it's just hanging on the wall or sitting on a table and you're not wearing it necessarily, um, you know, the kids can see it. They can, they can interact with it in their own way. You can figure out how to incorporate it into lesson plans. Um, taxidermy shops. I know, kind of random, uh, but uh, I know Ken had experiences with that where he was going to teach about the fur trade. So, again, he lives in northwest Indiana, which is basically Kentucky. Uh, so he went to a local taxidermy shop and just said, hey, do you have any, any scraps that I could have? And yeah. he hooked you up, right? What do you all have in your class? Well, he, you know, again, it was, it was a great experience. And uh, he had, like, um, you know, like, the beaver pelts that were drying on the... I forget what type of wood they use for that, but gave, gave me one of those to bring to the kids and a bunch of different animals that, I mean, some of them were exotic animals from people, you know, hunting over the years. It was like, hey, I don't need this stuff. You can take it, bring it to your, your kids and teach about it. And again, just, I never even knew to ask, but I've always been kind of afraid to ask for things. Like, hey, is this okay? But you'd be surprised how many people are willing to lend a hand, especially if you're a teacher. Like, they'll go above and beyond to make that work for you. Yeah. I've, I teach about the fur trade as well. So I bring in, uh, you know, I went dog sledding a few years ago in Canada and helped a guy work a trap line. And, and the guy I got hooked up with lives near me. He loans me a wolf pelt and a beaver pelt every year to show my kids. And, you know, to talk about the fur trade is one thing, but, you know, to have them passing a beaver hide around and, and feeling it, touching it, seeing how it would have been bundled, it, I mean, it totally makes a difference, right? It, it's the difference for the kids. Um, if your school has a thrift store, which many do, I know Timothy does, um, you know, I, I've got family around here in the Grand Rapids area, I know that's a, a pretty popular thing, you know, leave a note, talk to the manager, um, and have them leave a note for the sorters. As things come in, you know, if, if you see any military uniforms, if you see any antiques, you know, just kind of list out maybe what you're looking for, and they can pull that stuff aside for you, um, maybe even just text you a picture, hey, you want this? It'd be awesome, right? Even if you, um, Probably get it for free, I assume, but even if you have to throw a few bucks to, to the store, 
it's, it's a cheap, easy way, and, and somebody else is finding it for you, which is always nice, too. Um, all else fails, you know, there's, there's a lot of prop websites out there um, that theater companies use. Um, Etsy, Amazon, eBay has tons of stuff, of course, for sale. You know, if you have a little extra in the classroom budget, which we always have extra, right? <laughs> uh, but if it's important to you and you think it could make the difference for your kids or really become like a, a, an annual thing that you're using a lot, it's worth the investment just to, to buy a reproduction something. So things I've done in my classroom, again, seventh grade, um, I, I am blessed that there's a military museum about five miles from my house. It's, it's one of the best I've ever been to. I've been to military museums all around the world, and it's, it's one of the top-notch ones. And they have these, these trunks, kind of like Ken was talking about the Smithsonian, for every, every major American military conflict. And in it is reproduction uniforms and equipment and hats, and you know, it comes with a binder of materials to share, and there's like reproduction newspapers. An awesome, awesome resource. And it's like the library. I just go check it out. They give it to me for two weeks. I figure out whichever day I want to show it. Um, and they're cool with <coughs> trying this stuff on. And that's kind of a unique thing that I have access to there. Um, but maybe your local place, uh, local museums have something they're willing to loan out to. And maybe even if the kids can't try it on, it's something you can bring into your room. Uh, so that's something my kids look forward to every year. They've had siblings go through it. They've seen the pictures in the newsletter. Uh, they get excited for Civil War Uniform Day. A couple years ago, I had a, a student say, you know, my grandpa's really into the Civil War. He's got so many guns, too. And right there, I was like, huh? You know? But I, I got into contact with, with grandpa, and he was like, oh, yeah, I've been obsessed with the Civil War since I was like 10. He travels around to battlefields. He's a rather wealthy man, so he's invested a lot in just, just his own personal collection. And he said, you want any of my guns to show your kids? Yes, please. Um, so there you see a couple. Uh, the, the rifle on the right uh, is a re uh, reproduction, but the one on the left is an original like 1863 Sharps carving. Now, maybe not everyone is willing to let kids handle their um, antique firearms, but he's cool with it at least. Uh, and you know, Ken talked earlier about you know, having the reenactors bring guns, um, and I do that on, on several different days. I bring in firearms. Um, I know you're kind of like, well, how does that work? I don't have the federal license that uh, that other man has, but you know, I, I ran it by my principal. Um, I, I personally, I was in the military. I've been shooting guns all my life. I'm pretty comfortable with firearms. So I think that helps. Maybe you wouldn't be comfortable doing that, but maybe the person you're borrowing them from would be willing to come in and handle that part of the presentation for you, or, or at least be on hand uh, to answer questions if you're not you know, familiar with, with firearms. Um, before we ever even take them out of the cases. I always go over just a real quick basic gun safety 101. We talk about finger off the trigger, which unfortunately the boy on the right wasn't following that direction. Um, <laughs> you know, we don't point guns at anything. We're not anticipating shooting and we're not shooting anything today. I talk about how there's no ammunition in my car, there's nothing in the classroom. You know, I, I make it very clear that these these are safe, as safe as can be. You know, um, And we also just, yeah, our I'm very, very strict. If you do anything stupid with this, you point it at someone, you think you're, you know, having fun, whatever, you're out of here. And I haven't had any problems in 10 or 11 years of doing that. So, kids, you know, they'll, they'll rise to the occasion, especially if it's something cool like they get to hold a gun at school. Um, they'll, they'll probably toe the line pretty good. And I put on there just become an expert. I know we're all experts in our own areas. We all have our own areas that we're really into in history. But if you're going to do things like this, bringing things into your classroom, 
it, it pays to really put in that extra effort to learn what you're actually having the kids handle. Because they're going to have questions. Right? And a lot of times, you know, if it's somebody from a museum, it'll come with a binder, a booklet, or whatever to kind of help you through that. Lean heavily on those resources. But also just know that there is just tons of information out there on the internet, of course. Uh, so like before I did started doing this lesson, I learned way more than I probably ever needed to know about Civil War uniform materials and why did they use this color versus that color and you know what is this type of bag called and just trying to get all that vernacular I guess you could say down uh, so that as I present I sound smart uh, but then as kids have questions too you can answer those confidently and not have to you know page to a binder or just say like I don't know if you do have to say I don't know that's fine but then of course have them find out maybe have them do a little research on the spot or you know come back the next day. I don't teach World War II, uh, but I do something very similar for my eighth grade teacher. She has me kind of be flip-flop days, uh, and I do essentially the same lesson, but with World War II uniforms. Um, I have gotten the same, like, trunks from that museum in the past, but we also have a colleague who happens to be a reenactor, uh, and we borrowed his equipment, too. He does German reenactments and American reenactments. We've done both uniforms over the years. Um, I have a couple historic firearms of my own, so that's, that's my M1 that I bring in. Uh, and again, it's, it's just a really cool experience. At least the angle I usually take on those days is, you know, if you and I were alive during this time, we wouldn't be the big name general that everyone reads about in the history book. We wouldn't be like the, you know, person that's going to go down most likely in history. We're going to be just a normal person, right? What did the normal people do? So that means what did they wear? What did they eat? What equipment did they have? Feel how heavy that rifle is. Imagine marching 20 miles in the Civil War with a gun that weighs, you know, 16 pounds and you're wearing wool, right? It, it just flips the switch in their minds. Like, right, what would I have experienced? And that's how history sticks in kids' heads, right? If you don't have any of those things, again, you can buy some stuff, too. You know, I just did a quick little Amazon search, found some arrowheads. You know, if that would make a difference in your classroom. You know, everyone, the kids all know what an arrowhead is, but if you can actually feel them, feel the materials, feel the, the roughness of the stone as you pass it around, maybe that's a difference in a kid's mind of just understanding Native American culture or, you know, prehistoric culture that much better. And, I mean, 15 bucks, not, not the end of the world. Um, a powder horn, right? Uh, maybe that, talking that lesson about Minutemen, maybe that would be a cool thing for the kids to be able to, to think about, okay, what, what did they have to have on them or near them at all times? Well, this, right? Um, and again, relatively inexpensive, and if you have it your whole career, what's 20 bucks over And of course, we have pictures, right? If you can't find the items, pictures will do. And I know that probably doesn't really need to be said. We all do that anyway. Um, but those priceless artifacts you can't lay your hands on, you know, at least have an image. Um, and, and you can do a lot of cool stuff with pictures of course, too. Now, once you actually get the stuff, um, I think it's valuable not to just pass it around, but to actually analyze it, right? So I'm going to talk a little bit about artifact analysis. I kind of just say history nerd show and tell. Um, but once you get that stuff in their hands, uh, it's good for them to, to really dive in and, and think their way through these items. Uh, you could use this as like a cold intro, you know, to introduce a new unit. You know, have that random item that will tie in later in, in a lesson plan. Uh, you could do it, you know, mid-unit, whenever, of course. It, it, I think it can really kind of give a little spark to your lessons to actually bring some of these artifacts in. But again, do your research. Know what you're talking about, which... Feel stupid to tell a bunch of teachers that, but again, these things are maybe things you're a little unfamiliar with. You know what it looks like, but really learn the ins and outs. It just makes all the difference for 
for the kids as they're trying to learn more too. Uh, and this goes hand in hand with like your primary sources. We all use primary sources. Uh, a lot of the, the tricks, the skills you are trying to teach with how to analyze you know, a document goes into artifact analysis too. And of course this goes with inquiry-based learning, which is really nothing new. We just started calling it that a few years back. But as social studies teachers, we want our kids asking questions and inherently answering those questions um, themselves too. And artifact analysis, just it, it's perfectly set up for that. Um, I think this should almost always be done with partners because you know, two, three, four heads are better than one. If it's a very unfamiliar item or something just completely new to them, the more brains working together to answer questions or come up with questions, the better. Um, so I, I try to always do that. And it can also teach kids it's okay to be wrong. Uh, I think kids are afraid of being wrong, and that's, that's a problem. You know, we, we, we're wrong. I'm wrong a lot. Just ask Ken. But uh, to teach these kids any model how to be wrong as you look at something, uh, as you try to figure something out, it's, it's valuable. This does take time, though. I'll just be upfront about that. It could take you a whole lesson. It could take half a day. So I know we're always crunched for time. We always want more time. But, again, I, I think it's valuable enough to... to Kind of focus on. This is kind of ugly, um, but this is my like artifact analysis kind of question blank uh, or bank, excuse me, that depending on what item I'm showing in class, I'll draw different questions, kind of tailor it. So it's, I mean, it's just a Word doc that I just make a new Word doc and click and drag or copy and paste things over. Uh, now don't try to strain your eyes, okay? Um, these are the questions. And, you know, if, take a picture real quick, whatever. Um, but you can format this any way you want. Honestly, mine's kind of ugly probably, but you could probably do something better. But, you know, some questions are pretty obvious. What do you think this is, right? Um, what material, or actually, what do you think it was used for? Okay, that's pretty straightforward too. But then why do you say this? You know, what about it makes you think that's what this was intended for? What materials is it made out of, or what do you think it's made out of? You know, what time frame? That one might be an easy one, it might be a hard one for them, uh, depending on if they can connect it right to you know, your current unit, that, that might be an easier question for them to answer. Um, what other, I, I like this one, what other objects might this item have replaced when it was created or invented? That gets them to kind of stretch their minds a little bit, maybe think back to the beginning of the year, you know, some, some older history, or just have to think more creatively, like, all right, I'm pretty sure I know what this does, but yeah, what did people do before they had the technology to make this? Or, you know, before they found this, you know, type of thing. So it just, again, stretches them a bit. Um, what are some other questions, or questions you have? Any other observations? It's always good for you to guide the conversation, but also give the kids some leeway and some time and, and opportunities to kind of figure out, well, hey, I see this, you know, or, or discover something on their own. That always makes them feel more invested in it, a lot better about it. I like this question, too, um, third from the bottom. If you were to find this item, what's another item you'd expect to find with it? You know, so that kind of makes them put on their archaeologist hat and like, okay, if I dug this up, what else might be there? It, it again, just kind of makes them think, how did this tool or item, how is it used by this culture or these people? And just how does it fit in? How does it fit into what we're studying? We, of course, want to make that connection too. Uh, so that hopefully that's an obvious one to them. And then I like the last one as well. How is, it, how is this item used in our lives today or, or isn't it? Right? And if it's not, like, what replaced it? Again, just stretching their minds a little bit and making them realize, like, today we're obviously our technologically advanced selves, but we have a lot in common with these people from a couple hundred years ago. You know, history is not just old, dusty, crusty, dead people. Like, we have a lot in common. So that question, I think, makes them kind of 
focus on that. We got time, right, Ken? Uh, I think so. Yeah, we're, we're going to 11.10. We got time for this. Okay. So I want to do a little analysis, okay, with, with you guys. Um, there's more people than I thought. That's awesome. But we got, uh, I just brought in some random stuff from just kind of my own classroom. Uh, and I thought we would have you kind of group up and actually do an artifact analysis uh, together. So, get you active a little bit. Um, so, maybe... Let me get the lights in. Yeah, Bill, can you turn on the lights? Hurry <laughs> 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 uh, So, maybe... Look at how many people... Four to probably at least seven or eight people a group-ish. Yeah. Just the people around you. Yeah. And then uh, once you kind of figure out who you're with, Send up just one person. As you can tell, I am hobbling a little bit. i got to save my steps. Send a person up, and I'll send you back with an artifact and an artifact analysis sheet. Okay? So we'll take maybe ten minutes, seven or eight minutes. Yeah. But, yeah, send somebody up. Let's put these. What's up, bro? What's up, dude? Great job. It's been a long time. Scotty, I think you get a sword. No, no. Well, he said the coolest thing. Over. Scotty good. Well, you are a sportsman. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Scotty, good choice. Scotty, you gotta get a good one. Oh, Scotty. Oh, it's yeah, that's a game. You get that. You <laughs> get this. Ah, uh, here you go. Oh, take a sheet. Oh, yes, you take one of these. All right. Hey, how are you? Do you go to Leaps? Yes. At Leaps? Yes. I'm in Highland. Yes. I'm like, yes, I, do. I had Adam. I'm thinking to myself, why have I never thought of this? I'll probably connect with you. Yeah. See what you do, but I'll call Adam. He was my student not that long ago. He's requested the lantern. Because I'm right there now. I'm like, maybe I could come in next week. I don't know. Okay. I need something. I would love to do Wait, thank you. Arrowheads. Can I have a super meal? Thank you. Alright, thanks a lot. Exactly Yeah. 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 Yeah.
What other objects? But the time power Three more minutes. Three more minutes. 
Person. He had a laser. Okay. Um, and it took us a little while to think about when it was made. Um, and I think we came, you know, like we kind of a broad range. We were thinking like 1870. <laughs> 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 ah. That is okay, and it's still intact. Amazing. All right. All right. Um, we thought it was pretty fascinating, and we were thinking that this is still made at Restoration Hardware today. So we weren't sure if this was from that time or from now. Okay. But, uh, well, it's actually from Great Grandpa Vanderbilt's farm. My great grandfather milked the cows every morning with that in uh, about 1917 is when he was using that thing. But you're close with 1873. We'll give it. Uh, what would have another item that you would? Uh, excuse me. If you were to find this item, what is another item you'd expect to find with it? We said something to light it. What would something might be? Matches. Okay, matches. Kerosene or something else to Sure. Now. I think this is obvious, but do we use these in our modern lives other than restoration hardware decor? <laughs> so no, we don't. <laughs> right. So again, just stretching your minds a little bit. You know, those are obvious answers, of course, for us. But just how do we see the progression through history from you know this very real thing that you've seen pictures of or seen in movies? But yeah, how do we see it today in our lives? Good, good. How about this group of ladies up here? They got the coolest one. This is a sword. (laughs) And we have an inkling that it's from the Civil War era. Ah. Call it for premonition. (laughs) And we think 
that maybe this was used for like a higher level Civil War person, so like who wasn't using a gun and walking, maybe on a horse so that they could just whip it out and then attack. So, um, yeah. Alright, so you hit arrow, you hit what you think it is, which, yes, it is a sword. Uh, and then, like, yeah, what do you think it was used for? You, you hit that, too. I, I overheard you ladies talking, like, alright, what replaces a sword? Right? So what in our modern lives, you know, do, do we see that in military actions today? Well, we're not super familiar with weaponry, but um, we said, well, yeah, we use, like, guns, which is more and more advanced weaponry. People do still use knives today, uh, not for the same purpose, but... Cool. This is an actual Civil War sword from, uh, I think, about 1864. I had a student whose mom uh, emailed me and said, you know, my, my mother just passed away. We're cleaning out her house. She was a huge antique person. And we have this sword. It has paperwork that says it's from the Civil War. Do you want it? <laughs> yes. Uh, if you want to come check it out later, it's really, really cool. Um, she had the green thing uh, uh, cloth just because the, the handle actually is, is wrapped in shark skin for grip. You know, like you wrap like a baseball bat or a hockey stick. And, and that was just some research I did myself. So there's like little flecks of shark skin still on there. And mm. fewer oils, the better. But come check that out at the end. It's, it's pretty sweet. Uh, group back there. Yes, we were very confident that this was from the Mayan um, civilization and about 1,000 A.D. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> You're way off. Most of us are not social studies teachers, but that's okay. Um, we just came for the entertainment. But we noticed that there's um, something on the back. We don't know if that is modernized, so you would definitely need a nail. Mm -hmm. for this um, artifact. Okay. That's about as far as we got. We thought turquoise and stonework. We thought calendar. Calendar. We at first thought sundial, and then thought, you know, maybe not. Is there <laughs> so a little tag on there that says Mayan calendar from 1000 AD? No. no. We figured that all out by ourselves. Oh, okay. <laughs> Wonderful. The tag and it, said, it said something about it. We thought made in China, but not. Well, I know the girl in green lived in Latin America, so I'm sure she had all the answers for you, right? But it's a reproduction of a, of a Mayan calendar, right? <laughs> that, that was given to me by a student. I, I used to teach um, Latin American history my first few years. Uh, they missed my class for a week to go to Mexico with their family, and of course I gave her a hard time, and that was like a peace offering. So again, your kids, right? They, they travel. Sometimes they like you and bring you things as well. Uh, group in the back. We have baseball and um, had some experience with athletic equipment from the turn of the century. Um, so this one lacks the webbing and the pocket. So it probably is closer to the 1800s than the 1900s. And it does change leathers and it's also machine stitched. Um, and the thing we noticed is that the technique would be different in catching the ball because the thumb and the pinky are over um, padded. My great uncle was a professional baseball player for the White Sox. Whoa. Now, again, most of these items that like, you can look at as a social science teacher, like, yep, I know what that is. But, and like, they obviously knew that was a baseball glove. But think of a kid today who 
maybe if they're into baseball, they know that gloves used to look like that. But you put that in front of most kids, you're like, what kind of weird winter glove is this? Because it just looks so bizarre compared to what we're used to today. Yeah, that was my great uncle's baseball glove from about 1915 that I inherited. So, cool, very good. I won't ask any follow-up questions because you were coming up with stuff I never would have noticed too. Leather changes and stitching, that's great. How about these gentlemen up here? All right, well, we, um, we uh, guessed that this is uh, a military uh, utility belt slash jacket um, based on the coloring and just the kind of the construction of the materials. We're guessing it's like uh, uh, maybe Gulf War, Iraq War, Afghanistan uh, vintage and you know, would have been used uh, by a soldier to cart around various um, um, clips and ammo and a and, uh, picture of a loved one and maybe a little snack. Oh, oh there it is. There it is. Oh, it's Okay. It's, it's labeled as such. Ah. It's the nice thing about the army. They assume you're an idiot and they label everything quite nicely. Um, so, I'll ask you guys a follow-up question. Uh, what other items do you think would have like replaced that, if if any would have, or do you think it's modern enough that's still in usage? We kind of said it's modern enough. We believe so. It's still in use today, or something like that. Yeah. Good. I overheard somebody say like, yeah, army surplus stores. Surplus stores are super expensive, just so you know. But uh, Facebook Marketplace, guys get out of the military and just want to sell all their junk so they don't have it around the house. You can score that kind of stuff. That, I wore that. I, I did a tour in Iraq in 06, 07. So that was, yeah, that was over my body armor. Um, you guys nailed it. Grenade pouches, ammo pouches. I forgot I had that stuff in my uh, little green pouch there on the side. Thanks for finding that for me. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, again, if you're teaching, you know, modern conflicts, Having a veteran come in, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of guys like me in our late 20s, 30s that, that were there, right? That, that did Afghanistan, did Iraq. Um, bring them in. Late 20s. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not in my late 20s. He's pushing 40. Some other people might be pushing 40. Come on, 37 ain't so bad. All right? Uh, but yeah, great, great. And again, military equipment from World War II, Vietnam, super common. And just having a few items for the kids to, to handle, to think like, okay, I'm a senior in high school. Guys my age were getting drafted to go to Vietnam. This is the kind of stuff I would have you know, graduated and then two months later been wearing at basic training and a year later in Vietnam. It just makes it more real to the kids. Hmm. Uh, you guys. Oh, Mr. Scotty, wonderful. All right, we're going to have Zach uh, model this for everybody. Great to see you. Thank you. Uh, we believe that this is some sort of worship uh, mask, uh, probably from, we went with the uh, Aztecs from about like 1,000 to 1,300. Uh, you would have probably been used at an altar or a temple. If you were digging around, you would have found probably skulls and bones and, and a knife used for sacrifices. Uh, we're we're feeling pretty good about this. Yeah, yeah. My wife went on a mission trip to Honduras and brought that back for me. Easy as that. And that's exactly what it's a, a replica of. Perfect, perfect. We've got one group left. They got an easy one, I think. But one group left there. 
you guys have the arrowhead? Can you get the arrowhead? Okay. They had this. <laughs> All right. Uh, whoever your spokesman is. Sure. Sure. things kids have probably seen around, but just to get them to wrap their minds around it, think their way through some of those questions, make their own observations. Yeah? Something super fun on the um, arrowheads, if you talk to the local people, they'll tell you where they've been found, and there's videos about how to find arrowheads. We went down in the creek um, and followed the techniques, and sure enough, kids found two arrowheads. No way. Awesome. Around here? Um, up in New Era. Awesome. Wow. Oh, my sister-in-law is from up there, and she has stories of like finding beads and arrowheads all the time. Exactly. Yeah, I'm kidding. Yeah, wow, that's pretty cool. Really fun. And we went out to a site um, and just found all sorts of artifacts. That was our field trip. Wow. And it's just little third, fourth graders, and I mean, better than Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My sister-in-law is Alicia Walhout. I love okay. you. All right, there you go. You got a little Dutch bingo, you know. Ross. All right, sorry. sorry. All right. I talk I'm going to come around with here. a box and collect those things. I'm going to shut up and let Ken talk. All right, thank you. It's about time. All right, so um, I get like the last seven minutes, so whatever. One of the things that I love to do in my class is um, we, we call it Breakout EDU, which is it's, it's a company. I'm not like endorsing anything here, but... One thing that I have realized post-pandemic, while we're still in it, of course, but um, kids, I feel, are really struggling to work together, to collaborate, uh, to develop some of those interpersonal skills that I think are so lacking in some of our classrooms. So in my context, um, in fifth grade, most of what we do is collaborative. Like, we are always working in partnerships or in groups. We just finished an inquiry unit on Native American cultural regions. And at the end of each unit, um, we do, like, a history-based escape room. Have you guys ever heard of Breakout EDU? Anyone? Yeah? You guys, have you done it before in yeah. your school? Yeah. So um, these kits are fantastic. Of course, you can do them yourself, but I'm not a fan of reinventing the wheel. I mean, if someone's already done the work for me, that's great. Um, this kit was like 150 bucks, and that's kind of expensive, but um, if you're a part of a school that's got a little bit of you know, slush money to just throw around to some uh, program that you're working on, I would highly, highly recommend doing something like this. So these escape rooms, so basically it's a, it's a platform online where they have hundreds and hundreds of different, basically, escape room games where, and some of them are digital, but I personally like the hands-on kits. Here's, a, here's one that I brought from our school. And so the object is to basically break into the box. And so we do history-based escape room lessons. Uh, one that we do is called history, uh, it's called document disorder. And we look at all of the different... Um, you know, documents of our nation's founding, you know, the Bill of Rights, um, the Constitution. And so there's, they're learning, they're studying, they're collaborating together. And, you know, I, I, I joke, I tell my kids, I said, listen, the most difficult thing about fifth grade is not the content. It's not, this, this stuff is really simple. 
I think what's the most difficult is learning to work with other people. Mm-hmm. That's the hardest part. And so not only are they learning you know, more history, but they're also developing some of these really, really important life skills. Uh, you know, collaborating together, uh, communicating with each other, and developing some of those critical thinking skills. So we, we do like um, maybe one of these per unit. So you know, too much of anything is not good. Uh, but we do like one maybe every month and a half to two months. And um, there are a lot of work to set up, but if the kids see you with these in the classroom, their faces just light up like, oh my word, I can't wait, this is so much fun. Um, but it's a great opportunity for your kids to develop some of those important skills and also learn about history, which is really awesome too. So it's 11.06, so we're about four minutes from ending. Does Anyone have any questions about anything that we have talked about or would just like to share something that you guys do in your classroom? That is, would, yeah, go ahead. Is there a tip for how to do this successfully? Uh, what, what do you mean? Uh, with, it, it could be pretty complicated for certain kids who yep. maybe don't see themselves as good puzzle solvers. Right. How do we include everybody? So what I do is I, I will split them up into groups. And again, part of the, the challenge is to get kids to get out of their comfort zone a little bit and to communicate. So I will spend a significant amount of time pre-teaching. Like, hey, you know what? Some of you, this is going to be a piece of cake because you're already a team player. But for other people, and I was kind of like this growing up. I was more of an introvert, extrovert. So sometimes working with people was tough for me because I trusted myself. I I didn't always trust the people I was working with. But it's all about developing trust in your community, your classroom together. And yeah, sometimes uh, kids cry during this because no one's listening to them. So it's it's true, it does happen. But, you know, I I still hold that it's, it's a very valuable lesson for these kids to be a part of a group, to solve a problem. Some of them are really easy, some of them are really hard, but they have them for kindergarten all the way up to like seniors in high school and adults, like college level stuff. Some of them I can't even do, they're, they're just too difficult. Um, but you, like, like for this, uh, this kit, they'll give you like hint cards, so there's a time limit, you know, they usually gives the kids about 40 minutes. And uh, you know, there are times when nobody solves the puzzle and they get really frustrated, and so I'm kind of helping them along. Other times you get like two groups that get out in 10 minutes. You're like, oh man, what am I going to do now? Um, and, and other kids, you know, will never break out and they get really frustrated. But uh, and then I'll have sometimes other kids help, you know, different groups that are struggling a bit maybe. Um, but yeah, does that answer your question hopefully? Yeah. So you buy one kit and then can use it for multiple like, you, scenarios? You can. Um, I, you know, our school has, I think we purchased like seven or eight of these kits. And so I would recommend, I mean, one I one is probably not enough for a classroom. I think when we do it, we usually do about three or four of them. And again, it'll take you about an hour to an hour and a half to set them up uh, because sometimes they'll have like, you know, papers and documents that the kids have to, you know, put together or use like a black light to look for invisible ink that you have to sit and, you know, write some things on. But the website itself gives you a lot of great tutorials on how to set it up, what the lock combinations are. 
And yeah, even you gotta, you know, you gotta teach the kids how to even open the locks. But it's amazing. At the end, we have post, uh, like, like some post discussions about what they learned. And like some of them are, you know, what did you learn about yourself through this experience? And I'll have like quiet kids that will raise their hand and say, I never knew I could do this kind of stuff. I, I never knew I could be a leader in a group, or I never knew I could learn and have fun at the same time. So it's, uh, it's something I really enjoy. It's different. It's unique. Um, it takes a little bit of time, but it's something that kids love and will remember for sure. So we do this at my school, and we have a couple of them, and we set them up around the school library. Oh. Um, and one thing I have learned is it's really helpful to have them spread out. Yeah. Because you're going to have your quiet kids, and then you're going to have your loud kids who are yelling what they <laughs> think the code is or the answers. So I found it's really helpful to do it in a space where you can spread the groups yeah. apart. And tell um, them, hey, if you find a code, don't broadcast it to everybody yes, and, and keep it yes. quiet. And to prepare them well. If we're not, you can't scream the answer because right. everyone's trying to solve the same code or the same combination to exactly. unlock the box. Um, and then also making sure it's really clear to the kids, what do I do if my group is done 20 minutes before the other group? Right. Um, and I have also done some of the digital ones, um, and I actually use them for ELA. So they are... Available yep. for other subject areas, but um, if you're short on time, the digital ones are fun to try to figure out as a class because the kids have to like type in certain codes or right. pick certain colors that go with a pattern of whatever you're talking about in class, right? So it could be, yep. I don't know, like what did this character in the book, like an example is from a book that the kids read in the library, they had to remember like what was the pattern or the saying that the character said in the book and then that goes with what they type in on their iPad. So to do the digital ones all together as a class can a save idea. some time rather than like an hour for doing something like that. And we, yeah, we did that mostly last year because, you know, with the pandemic we were not like touching, getting groups and mm -hmm. stuff, but yeah, we did a lot of the digital ones. Some of them are really good, but I think, you know, I, I just prefer the kits better. I do too. But, yeah. yeah, you're right. 